We continue to celebrate the Lord's Day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Saints from all over the world gather in local churches to celebrate Jesus Christ crucified and on Sunday, the first day of the week, risen from the dead. So it's a joy to gather together to remember and worship the Lord Jesus this morning. I just want to clarify something before we jump into the word and start the timer. Um, I said in the prayer that tonight we're going to get back together and it's not going to be a typical evening gathering because we are going to process uh, the sexual abuse task force report. We are one of the 47,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention networked together and a devastating report has been released. Praise God that these things are being exposed. We don't want them hidden. We don't care first about how it looks on us. We want the truth out and we want to make sure that that righteousness is done and that people are protected and that um, people are held accountable. And so we're going we're gonna to process that tonight. I want to encourage you to come back this evening. We're going to sing songs. Uh, I'm, I'm going to send the article again that I wrote yesterday. I edited it a few times and still editing it, but I'll send it out again. I'd encourage you to read it before tonight so that you are brought up to speed at least on my general reply. I'm going to summarize that. I'll send also the summary of the abuse report. You can look at that. It's 288 pages, so you don't have time to read that before this evening, but you could read um, the Gospel Coalition summary of it. That might be helpful. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that, and then we're going to do uh, Q&A. So bring your questions. Uh, it's okay if you don't have any questions because I have a list of like 25 questions you guys sent me through email and text messages throughout the week. So if you don't have questions, I got more than enough questions to just work through the list tonight. So we'll do that. And then we're going to have a season of prayer and lament and repentance and praying for ourselves, our church, and the convention. So um, that's going to be our prayer time. It's just going to be an open prayer time regarding what we talk about. Okay, so it's not our typical Sunday evening gathering tonight, so if you can make it back here at 5 o'clock, please come back for that this evening. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open, open it to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there is a pew Bible, black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you. Go ahead and grab it right under that chair and turn to page 1044 in the pew Bible. Page 1044. If you don't own a Bible, we have paperback Bibles in the back that you can take and keep. Bring that home and keep it. So if you don't own a Bible, there's, there's some Bibles there in the back, the back table for you to keep. Okay, so Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. Are you there? No? If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, so almost everyone. Away from one of our pastors to get there. It's after Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Okay, good. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. If this is your first time uh, looking at a Bible, um, when I say chapter 3, the 3 is the big number. And when I say verse 22, 322 or 23, that's the small numbers, okay? So hear God's word, chap Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 4, 1. Actually, let's start in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. And now the focus of our passage for this Sunday. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart, from the soul, as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. And there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly. Since you know that you too have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father in heaven, that is our prayer, that your word, the word of Christ, Christ preaching the word to us through this text and the power of your spirit, through my voice and through our thoughts, that your word would dwell in us richly. Transform us, Lord. This passage has the power to shift our lives drastically. And so we ask that you would shift our lives that the way we approach our Monday to Saturday would change forever. That you would plant a seed deep in our souls that would bear fruit this week and increasingly for the rest of our lives, for the glory of your name and the spread of your gospel. So help us now to hear your word, to abide in Christ and let his words abide in us. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. We can't hear well, we can't obey well, we can't understand it well. We can't bear fruit. So fill us with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding by your Holy Spirit's power. We desperately need you now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I am excited for you to think about this passage this morning because trusting Christ through this passage and the instruction of this passage has the potential, like I just prayed, it has the potential to drastically change your lives to shift your life so powerfully and pervasively. Now, to get there, we have a lot of work to do before we even get to the command. Paul starts with those under authority before addressing those with limited authority. I'll just recap what I talked about on May 1st when I preached uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. So when, he when he says, wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters. He starts with those under authority first, and then he addresses those with authority, with limited authority. Maybe to show that bad leadership or abuse of authority is not a valid excuse to resist or rebel against legitimate authority. And so the two principles of this passage from 318 to 4.1 is, one, number one, submit to authority as a submission to the Lord Jesus. And the second principle kind of guiding this passage is exercise authority rightly as a display of the Lord Jesus. So whether you're a wife or husband, child or parent, slave or master, you're either submitting to authority as you submit to Christ, the Lord Jesus as the ultimate authority, and or you exercise authority in a right manner to display the Lord Jesus. 
So that's what we talked about almost a month ago now. And we talked about where we get the power to submit to authority and where we get the power to not abuse authority for our own selfishness, but to use authority to serve others and glorify God. Where do we get that power? The power comes from who? From God, right? God has to give us his power. And not only does God have to give us his power, if you're in Christ, God promised his people he would give this power. He promised it in the new covenant. You remember that? We talked about the twin promises of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. What are the two promises of the new covenant that God promised even 500 years before Jesus Christ came? What were the two promises? Say it out loud. He'll what? He'll write his law. God will write his law on his people's hearts. He'll put his word not just on the outside, not just on the ears, not just in front of the eyes. He'll actually put his word on our hearts to change our hearts so that we want to do what we ought to do. What's the second promise? There's a second one. He'll give us what? He'll give us his Holy Spirit. He will take out our heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, he'll, and then he will give us his Holy Spirit. Okay, those are the two promises of God before Christ came. Word and Spirit, Word and Spirit, Word and Spirit promised to you to indwell you. And then Jesus comes 500 years later after these promises of the new covenant, this new Israeli covenant, and he says, I am the true Son of God. I am the true Israel. And I will die. He says, this is my body given for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so he gives his body and he sheds his blood and dies on the cross for sinners so that he would, so that everyone who believes in Jesus and repents from their sin would be united to him and become the new Israelic covenant community under the new covenant, the new Israelic covenant. Which means if you trust in Jesus and repent from your sins, God will give you his Holy Spirit and he will write his law and write his word where? On your heart. If you're not a Christian, this is really good news for you. You don't have to come up with, your, with a power within yourself to obey God. You don't have to clean yourself. That's good news. You know why? Because you can't clean yourself. You don't have the power to obey God. You don't have the power to cleanse yourselves. None of us do in ourselves. That's the bad news. The bad news is that we're sinners and we're powerless to do anything about our sins. And God created us and he holds us accountable for the sin and he will judge us for our sins. That's really bad news for us sinners. And the good news is the gospel, the main message of Christianity is this. God sent his son Jesus into this world to save sinners. The Son of God, God the Son, took on human flesh, lived the life we should have lived, died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, and rose from the dead so that if you would turn from your sins and turn from your righteousness and turn from your goodness and turn from your self-cleansing methods and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and as your treasure, if you would receive Christ, God would forgive you of your sins. He'll change you forever. He'll cleanse you of your sins. He'll free you from sins. He will give you his Holy Spirit to continually free you from the power of sin. He'll write his law on your heart so that you'll want to do what you ought to do, even as you continue struggling with sin throughout the rest of your life. Like we sang earlier, yet not I, 
but through Christ in me. Christ himself, God himself will dwell in you and empower you to change. So if you're not a Christian, that's the invitation. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be forgiven and saved from your sins. So this is the twin promises, word and spirit. And then we have the twin commands in the New Testament. If God promise you, promises you his Holy Spirit, what does he command to you in Ephesians 5.18? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Because he promised the Holy Spirit in you and he's given you the Holy Spirit and has caused the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. Therefore, now that the Spirit lives in you, now you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or as we memorize, if you've been keeping up in our fighter verses, our family is not keeping up. We're like two weeks behind. But just this past week, we did Galatians 5, 24 and 25. If you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Because you already live by Him. He lives in you. So keep in step with Him. Be filled by Him. And if you're filled by Him, according to Ephesians 5, then husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves Respectfully, that's Ephesians. If you're filled by the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life changes your home relationships, it changes your married relationships, it changes your parent-child relationships, it changes your slave-master relationships. That's one command. But what's the twin command? Not just be filled by the Spirit, but here in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ, what? Dwell richly among you. And if the word of Christ dwells richly among you, then you'll sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly. You see how the same household code is there, but the cause or the root, the main command is different. Be filled by the Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The twin commands of a new covenant community, of a new covenant Christian. If you're in Christ, these are twin commands for your life. Be filled by the Spirit and let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So that's the Christian life. Now, uh, so the Christian life is not primarily, if you're saying, what does the Christian life look like? It doesn't look like reading a bunch of theology books and sharpening your theology at least not according to this passage. What does the Christian life look like? It looks like the way you treat your spouse respectfully in the home. It looks like children trusting their parents and trusting the Lord. It looks like parents admitting their failures and humbly serving their children and exercising authority for their children's good. It looks like slaves obeying their masters enthusiastically and wholeheartedly and completely detached at the root from their masters at all. It looks like masters treating their slaves justly and fairly. That's what the Christian life looks like day to day. This is the day to day Christian life. So look at verse 3. I mean, sorry, chapter 3, verse 22. Who's he talking to in verse 22? Say it out loud. Slaves. In verse 1 of chapter 4, who's he talking to? Masters. Paul addresses slaves and masters. Slavery? We're talking about slavery this morning. Slavery. Now, what does this passage have to do with us today? Who are the slaves today? 
Now, when Paul is writing this to the church at Colossae, there were slaves and masters in the, in the congregation. You know, if I say, children, raise your hand, and children raise their hand, okay, let me talk to you children. Uh, parents, raise your hand, okay, let me talk to the parents. Slaves, raise your hand, all right, slaves, this is for you. Masters in the congregation, so here, uh, who is a wife here, raise your hand. Okay, there's a passage for you. Husbands, raise your hand. Children, raise your hand. Okay, fathers and parents, raise your hand. All right, huh, they're in this congregation. Slaves, raise your hand. Some of you might feel like a slave. <laughs> Masters, raise your hand. If you, if you own slaves, raise your hand. Anyone here own slaves? Slave owners? Okay. So you can get through this passage, you get to this point, you're like, well, who's a slave here owned by a slave master and who's a slave master? There's, this doesn't apply to us today. Does this passage have anything to say to us today? Yes or no? Yes, it does. Okay. Well, so again, we're not even getting to the passage. This is all introduction stuff, but let's think about slavery in the first century and then let's contrast it with any, if you're going to read this passage in the Western civilization after the 16, 17, and 1800s, you just can't read this without thinking about slavery and the slave trade. So um, we need to do some work here. If we're going to understand this passage correctly, we actually need to understand what slavery is like then and then contrast and compare it to slavery most re in a more modern history, and then we could actually dig into the passage, okay? So let's just think about slavery. So slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire was not based on race and skin color the way it has in, the, in, our, in our own country's history. Back then, quoting Tom Schreiner, slavery was exceedingly common in the Greco-Roman world. Let me just break from this quote. I read in, one, in some, some um, documents that up to 80% of the society were slaves in some cities, which is kind of, that's really high, right? So back to the quote. One third of those in Corinth were probably slaves. People could be born as slaves, sell themselves into slavery to pay debts, be sold into slavery, or become slaves by being captured in war. So it's oftentimes financial or by uh, captivity in war, okay? Um, many, I'll continue the quote, many slaves lived terrible lives, particularly those who served in the mines. It's got to be brutal. Other slaves served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, barbers, cooks, shopkeepers, and slaves could even own other slaves in the first century. In some instances, slaves were better educated than their masters. So let me just pause the quote again to say, let's be careful not to impose our knowledge of slavery onto what we're reading here in the text, okay? Let me continue the quote. Still, Tom Schreiner writes, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters and had no independent existence. Ancient slavery was cruel and often oppressive, but it does not follow that all masters were cruel. Slaves could purchase their freedom in the Greco-Roman world with the help of their masters, end quote. I heard in some other, um, some other people have said that um, people could be, people usually bought, if they're born in slavery, they usually bought out their slavery by age 30. I heard someone else say, you know, back then that the average would be 10 to 15 years of slavery to get out of the financial hardship and get their freedom. Okay, that's the first century slavery. Now, these texts have been misused and abused in our country's history to justify and endorse slavery, to justify and endorse the slavery that they practice here in this country. Now, the slavery that practiced in this country was based on skin color and the false construct of different human, quote-unquote, races. There are no different races, biblically speaking. There is the human 
race. There's different ethnicities based on ancestry, language, culture, geography. Um, but there's one race. So the human, so this kind of slavery in our history has based, is based on skin color and this false construct of different human races. And this was perpetuated largely by Christians using Bible passages like Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1. And Paul does not preach or instruct them to stop to abolish slavery. He merely regulates it. That's strange. Why doesn't Paul just say, get rid of slavery? It's a big question. I've got to just sketch an answer here. But slavery was not part of the original design of God. Now, marriage was. So you just said husbands, wives, and then children, parents. When you look at those four groups earlier in the passage, those are part of the original design of God and humanity before the fall. Slavery is not part of God's original design. But So, so why didn't Paul preach abolition of slavery? A few kind of get like pieces of the answer. We could talk about this more later. Feel free to ask me after and um, we could talk about this in another time. But Paul didn't preach the abolition of slavery because he was more focused on eternity and the salvation of people's souls. He taught submission to the government and he didn't want slaves to convert to Christianity because they wanted freedom to support their political agenda of being free from slavery. Okay. Um, it would be similar to saying Christian. I don't know if this is a good analogy. I'll try it. Um, if, if, if Christians were saying, um, you know, we should be for canceling all student debt today for college, college student debt. And, and so that was like, the, like a Christian biblical thing to identify Christianity by. Then a lot of people might want to become Christians for canceling student debt or something like that. Like an, an ulterior motive to become a Christian, not for the sake of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So instead, Paul doesn't go directly and say ab abolish slavery. At the same time, Paul does, with all his writings, he does undermine the institution of slavery through his teaching uh, of equality and Christian values that's rooted in the gospel. He undermines slavery in the local church. So if you just take all of his teaching and take all biblical teaching, slavery, so he's preaching to a church here or writing this to a church. If you do all of the one another's and all that the Bible says, the way slavery looks like in the church versus outside in society, it's just not even slavery anymore the way it would be recognized. Okay? So he effectively cuts the root and undermines slavery in the local church, not by directly saying it, but by all that he's teaching. And then, with all the one another's. And then, as you're also teaching Christians in churches to love your neighbor as yourself. So if now you're teaching the Christians to love their neighbors in society as themselves, Paul never commands the churches to change society as if we have the power to do that. But you are to love your neighbors yourself, and that is a powerful way of influencing the the community. You don't know if it's going to change, right? But when he commands Christians to love their neighbors as themselves and to be equipped in that, that would have a weakening effect on the injustice in society in general and on the injustice of slavery in particular. Now, would it weaken it and change it in the society? Paul's not concerned about that ultimately. But just love your neighbor as yourself with these principles, and it will weaken the effect of the injustice in the society, okay? So that's why Paul doesn't go directly at it, but he is going in a roundabout way. The Bible goes about it in a roundabout way to effectively um, eliminate it in the churches and weaken it, at least use the church's influence to whatever degree, to weaken it in society. I hope that's clear enough. Um, 
But I do have to answer one more question because I went over this with Peter last night and said, hey, so I just read this to him and said, what do you think? And so he said, well, okay, he had one question. I think I need to answer it here. He said, if I were living during legalized slavery in America, so go back 200 years to 1822. What is that? Three generations, four generations, go back three or four generations. Great-grandparents, maybe great-great-grandparents. If you were living in 1822 here um, in uh, probably great-great-great-great-great, okay, 200 years. Um, if you're living there and you're reading this text, how would you apply this text? So you're reading, imagine this, you're, you're in a church in 1822 and you're reading this passage. How, how should you understand this passage, given that slavery is legal? Should you just take it and be like, oh, I'm a master, that means I need to treat my servant justly and fairly, but hey, slavery's okay. And if you're a slave, should you read this passage and be like, oh, okay, I'm reading this passage, that means I need to obey my master and in this slave society. Is that how, you know, is that how this text would apply? How many of you think, how many of you guess? Now, just a leaning, this is hard, this is a hard question. And it, I mean, one of our pastors is asking this question, so it's not an easy question, so don't feel bad. Just as you, as you kind of guess this question, how many of you think, yes, that's how you should, they should probably read this passage and apply it? How many of you think no? Okay, only no's, no yeses, few guesses, some um, thank you for those who had the courage to guess. Um, my answer is, um, if you're reading this as a master, it says, look at verse one. Masters, what does it say? Deal with your slaves what? Justly and fairly. A better translation would be the LEB, which says, grant your slaves justice and fairness. But that, that, like justly is an adverb, it's actually now, grant your slaves, do for your slaves justice and fairness. So if a master is applying that in 1822, he would have to recognize the injustice and unfairness of kidnapping people. First Timothy 1.10 is against kidnapping, you know, slave trade through kidnapping. Kidnapping people, selling people, and enslaving them based on their skin color and supposed inferior race. That is, by definition, unjust. Does that make sense? So to apply this passage directly, in 1822, if you're there in church, if I was preaching then and if I had the moral clarity to see that, then I would just have to say from behind the pulpit, it is unfair by definition to have slaves in our context because we have kidnapped these people, we have brought them over here against their will, we sell them, and it's based on a false view of race. It's based on their skin color, and it's not, it's not the same uh, slavery institution of the first century. Does that make sense? You guys following? So, so if you applied it there, you don't just take this. So in other words, when I'm applying 318 to 4.1 here, uh, if I was applying it in 1822 to my church family, that would be a lot different. It would almost be on the whole institution and just debunking it and trying to teach our people to, to do good works in light of justice and fairness. But So what does this passage have to do with us? If, if we don't have slavery today, what does this passage have to do with us? I want to say, um, and Tim Keller said this in, when he preached it from Ephesians 6, actually because slavery in the first century is different than slavery in America, it's act, this is actually more applicable to us than to the slavery situation. Because the slaves there were employees. They were working they were working, and, they, and it was a financial situation and set up, and they could get out of it. So there are financial obligations here, and there were, yeah, it's not to say that everything was right with first century slavery, but actually the differences here between first century slavery 
and Western civilization slavery of 200 years ago, that difference actually makes this passage more applicable to us than to that situation, okay? So back to why I'm excited. That was a lot of work, but back to why I'm excited to preach this text for 25 more minutes. <laughs> the reason why is because the majority of your lives are not living here on Sunday. I love Sundays. I hope you love Sundays too if you're a member of this church. I hope some of you feel sometimes, man, I wish every day was Sunday. Um, for, for different reasons, not just to not work here. Right? <laughs> but the majority of your life is not Sunday. And you do a lot of work. And so this passage, if you apply this passage in your life, this passage has the power to really infuse uh, passion, devotion, worship, spiritual growth, and magnification of Jesus in ways that, I mean, this is 40 hours of your week, right? This has huge implications for the majority of your week. And so we do really well to pay attention to this. Let me just do a short plug here. I might do a short plug later. You guys know what we're covering in our Sunday school classes? Divinity school at nine o'clock, what's our class? Christians in the workplace. Christians in the workplace. Peter, how many people were here this morning? Nine of you, thank, thank you nine or 10 for coming. All the rest of you are invited to come next Sunday at 9 a.m. to go deeper into what this passage would mean for your life. We're spending 12 more weeks on it. You need to think about this and know this well. This sermon, the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, does not do justice to how to think well about working for Christ in the workplace. You get 12 more hours if you'd come to the Sunday morning divinity school from 9 a.m to 10 a.m. All right, what's the main idea of this sermon? The main idea of the sermon is this. The word of Christ transforms your work dynamics so that you live the full and fulfilled life in Christ. The word of Christ transforms your work dynamics. You can just stop there if, you're, if it's too long. Like that is enough. That's the main idea. The word of Christ transforms your work dynamics. Now I'm gonna give you like kind of the the reason why it's important, so that you live the full and fulfilled life in Christ. That second part is really the whole point of the book of Colossians. What is Colossians all about? They want to say, they're all Christians, they all follow Jesus, they say, I want to live the full life in Christ. So some of them are saying, man, the way to live the full life in Christ, I need to go back to the Old Testament and obey, the, obey those expired judgments. That's not the way to live the full life in Christ. Others are saying, I need to worship angels, I need to get those secret heavenly visions, and then I'll live the full life in Christ. Others are saying, I need to be super disciplined and read my Bible every day and fast and do all of these extra things and be extra disciplined and treat my body severely so that I can live the full life in Christ. You see what the Colossians are after? They're after what we should all be after, experiencing the full life in Christ. They were just tempted to go in the wrong direction. For them, the full life in Christ was being captivated by philosophies and empty deceit through human traditions and the elements of the world rather than based on Christ. That's Colossians 2.9, right? That was their temptation. And you're tempted to do that in the workplace, to be, to be captivated by false ideas, by empty traditions, by empty deceit, by philosophies of this world that can actually pull you away from being captivated by and enjoying your full life in Christ Jesus. A more simpler way of stating a main idea here is work for Christ, work with Christ, 
and work from the power of Christ. Okay, work for Christ, work with Christ, and work from the power of Christ. Now let's look at two points here, chapter 3, verses 22 to 325, and then chapter 4, verse 1. First he addresses slaves, then he addresses masters, right? So point one, obey human authority in the workplace. Obey human authority in working. So I'm talking to you employees. Employees, obey your human bosses in the workplace. Um, students, obey your teachers. You obey your teacher, Josiah? Good. Obey your teachers in the classroom. Okay? How? I want to answer two questions here. How should you obey human authority? And why should you obey human authority? How? How should you do it? Five ways. I'll say them and we'll go verse by verse through it, okay? Comprehensively, wholeheartedly, fearfully, deeply, and worshipfully. I'm not going to repeat it. I'm just going to go through them. So you just write them as I go through, okay? How should you do it? Look at verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters in? In what? In what? Everything. Everything. So that's comprehensive, right? What should I obey my boss with? What should I obey my teachers with? Slaves, those under authority, obey your human authorities in everything. In what? Everything. It's comprehensive. Not some things, not the things you like, not your preferences. In everything. It's comprehensive. So how should you obey? Comprehensively. Secondly, look at verse 22. I said wholeheartedly, and that's what the verse says, right? Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work how? Wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Work wholeheartedly. So don't just work when you're, at, when you're in the workplace, when you're on the clock, when you're on the job. Don't just work when you're being watched. You know what that's like, right? If you have a computer and you're working and you're clicking on something and someone starts coming to your desk, what do you do? You got to change the window, right? You got to click away. You got to, you know, you, you got to close the window quick. Because the person's coming right around, they're going to see what's on your screen, and you don't want them to see what's on your screen because you're not working hard. You're not working well. You're not working wholeheartedly to the Lord. Work wholeheartedly, not just when being watched, not just when people see as people pleasers. I just want to make sure that they don't look down on me for my lack of work, for my bad work ethic. Don't do that. Don't work only as people pleasers when people are watching, when, when the eyes are on you. But work wholeheartedly. Why, does it, why is wholeheartedly contrasted with being a people pleaser? Because when you're doing it as a people pleaser or when people are watching you, it's not with your whole heart. Your heart is motivated by other people being there. That's not your whole heart. You're not really into your work. But Paul is talking about the scope of how much you're into your work. Wholeheartedly. You're wholly invested in your work. Work wholeheartedly. Thirdly, so comprehensively, wholeheartedly. Thirdly, work fearfully. Look at verse 22. Wholeheartedly, what does it say at the end? Fearing the Lord. See that? Verse 22. You should work fearing the Lord. What does it mean to work fearfully? Well, who should you fear? The Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, right? Fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is, here's my definition, a supreme reverence for the Lord that frees your will 
to do all the Lord says. A supreme reverence for the Lord. Now, when you're revering Christ, but not supremely, then that's not the fear of the Lord yet. The supremacy of Christ in fearing him is, is important to the, when it talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is when Christ is truly supreme and you revere him more than your boss, more than your health, more than yourself, more than your family, more than your friends, more than money. Once you revere Christ above all, that is the beginning of wisdom for your life. And so when you work, you work with a supreme reverence for Christ that frees your will and frees your heart to want to do all that God says. Your will is bound by your supreme fear. And when your supreme fear is losing the job or pleasing your boss or what other people are going to say, then that is, that's, that, that's where your heart flows, by your supreme fear. So fear the Lord more than your boss. Fear the Lord more than the money you're, you might lose. Fear the Lord more than the other people you are providing for. Fear the Lord as supreme. Next, verse 23, as you work and as, obey your, as you obey your human masters and everything. We have another command here, verse 23. Whatever you do, there's again the comprehensiveness, right? Obey your masters and everything. And then he says, whatever you do. So that includes everything you do, right? Whatever you do without exception. That's just a blank check. Everything you do, whatever you do, do it where? Do it how? From the heart. And so I use the word deeply here. Do it deeply. Do it from the heart. And the literal translation is from the soul. And you heard me say that when I read through the text. Obey or whatever you do, do it from your soul. So from the heart, he said wholeheartedly. That's what we're talking about the heart. Why is it saying heart again? Wholeheartedly is talking about the scope of it, that all of your heart is involved. Here it's speaking about the source, where it's coming from. What's the ultimate passion that's driving you? Where, where is, it, is it the ultimate passion? So when it comes from your soul, it comes from the depths of what you want, of what you desire, of what you care about. It comes from the depths of who you are. There's a lot of overlap between wholeheartedly and from the heart, right? But one's, one's really focusing on the source, the other one's focusing on the scope. But, the, but both of them together means that you are fully and wholly invested in your job. Not for one hour, not for two hours, but for all 40 hours. If you're working a 40-hour job, that you're wholly invested from your soul in what you do. And then lastly, from verse 23... So I said comprehensively, wholeheartedly, fearfully, deeply, and lastly here, worshipfully. Look at verse 23. Do it from the heart as something done for whom? For the Lord and not for people. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to honor Jesus? Do you love magnifying Jesus? Do you love it when Christ is pleased with you? Do you love it when other people see Christ in you and then they want to love Jesus? That they start to get a little bit more interested in Jesus? Man, we love that as Christians, right? That's not hard. I don't have to tell you to love Jesus. I know you love Jesus. He put his spirit in you, right? I'm assuming that. He wrote his law in your heart. Of course you love Jesus. But did you know that every minute of your work, you can draw nearer to Jesus? You can honor him? You can actually um, do it for him in a way that magnifies him? This dignifies your work. You can worship the Lord every minute on the job. Every hour on the job, all 40 hours. When what you do is for the Lord, 
and not for people, that's an act of worship. So work worshipfully. So you don't need to be here on Sunday, which is why I don't call this a worship service. That's one of the many reasons. It is a worship service. We are worshiping the Lord here together, I hope. I trust. We intend to. But you're worshiping the Lord all throughout the week. So I don't want in, I don't want in your mind to think, oh, on Sundays I worship Christ. No, you should be worshiping Jesus when whatever you do, doing it for the Lord and not for people. Okay. So let me just... Thinking about this again, challenges in the workplace. By the way, our second point on masters is one verse, so it's just going to be shorter, just so you know. Um, if you're, what are some of the challenges in the workplace? Do people at work know you're a Christian? You don't have to say that out loud, but do people at work know you're a Christian? That you trust and follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior and treasure? And if they do know that, is it helpful to Christ's cause that they know you're a Christian? Or is it not helpful that they know you're a Christian? Like, man, I wish they didn't know I was a Christian because the way I work would actually be a shame to Christ. There are many temptations at work, right? Aren't there temptations to sin at work? There's a lot, right? The temptation to cheat your job when working from home and no one is looking. The temptation to complain and share complaints in conversation with coworkers with an ungrateful heart that ignores the goodness of God and the presence of Christ there. The temptation to um, seek to use clients or merely tolerate them rather than to bless and serve them as fellow image bearers. The temptation to laziness in work and not doing a good job but wasting time, procrastinating. The temptation to cut corners and do shoddy work, half-hearted work. The temptation to be consumed, here's the other side of it. The temptation to be consumed with your work, to being a workaholic. Too many hours, taking work home unnecessarily and calling it necessary. Speaking to myself here, among others. Daydreaming about work and your promotion or professional success with Christ completely absent from the picture and the motivation. What do you work for? We can be tempted to idolize efficiency. We could be working for a preoccupation with producing results and accomplishing assignments. We can be working to please our boss and marginalize Christ. We could be working for a raise. We can be working to defeat our coworkers to get that promotion because there's only one spot and three people are applying for it. We could be working for man's applause. We can be working to idolize and worship money, power, influence, prestige, applause, status. We can be tempted to use people and our company for self-centered, self-exalting, earthly-minded, heavenly-ignoring things, no longer serving Christ and others, not enjoying life from the depths of your soul, but using people, becoming a shell of yourself. Feels good and feels fulfilling in the short run, but in the long run, it's hollow and empty and enslaving, ironically. Does anyone else here need a prayer of confession right now <laughs> besides me? <laughs> let's just do another prayer of confession, right? Um, I'm convicted, but let's move on to meditate on the reasons why we should work obediently to our human authorities. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. So we talked about how. Let's think about why. Why, why work and obey your earthly masters in this way, in this five-fold way or six-fold way? Three reasons. Look at verse 24. I'll say the three again here and then we'll go on. Reward, lordship, and judgment. The three reasons are reward, 
lordship and judgment. Look at verse 24. Why should we work this way, Paul? Because you know, knowing that you will receive the what? The reward of an inheritance from the Lord. Why should you work hard? Why should you work to the Lord? Why should you work wholeheartedly? Why should you work from your soul? Why should you work fearfully? Why should you work worshipfully? Why should you work and obey comprehensively? Why? Because you know you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord Jesus. What is the reward? Generally speaking, it's the new earth. It's a city that is to come, whose builder and architect is God. You will receive infinite wealth and riches and joy. According to Colossians 1.22, you will be presented blameless and holy before God. That is your reward. John preached this last week from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. God pays attention to your work. God is righteous. He is just. He notices how you work. He notices how you spend your minutes. He notices how you spend your hours. He notices the tasks you complete. He notices your attitude and the inner life, the inner life as well as the outer life as you work. And he will reward you. In, in Luke chapter 19, I, I almost thought, oh man, how much time should I spend on a theology of rewards? I'll spend a little bit of time on it, all right? Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, in the parable of the ten minas, in Luke 19, 11 through 26, you can read the whole thing later, but um, the, the, the servants come, uh, a servant is given ten minas, and a servant is given um, five, min uh, five minas, and so, um, um, let's see, so the, the servant does, does work for the master, and then in Luke 19, 17, the master comes back. He, um, the servant earns 10 more minas. When he was given 10, he earns 10 more, and the master says, well done, good servant. He told him, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, you will have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, master, your, mina has, your five minas have made five minas. Uh, so he said to him, you'll be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. Actually, they all had one mina. They multiplied. Uh, here is your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you. Since you're a harsh man, you collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. So this, did this man do any work? No, he did nothing. He just buried it because he was scared. Verse 22, he told him, I will, I will condemn you by what you've said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, you would, it would have collected interest. So he said to the, those standing there, take away the mina, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And, and, but notice here for the first two servants, when one, one man produced 10 minas, what, what was his reward? He has authority over what? 10 what? 10 towns. And the one who produced five minas, what is he? What's his reward? He'll have authority over what? Five what? Five towns. What does that mean? What does it mean to have authority over town? Now, I don't know exactly what this means, but it does mean that in heaven, we will have varied rewards. We will have varied rewards. Now, all of us will be to the full. None of us will be discontent. You'll be fully joyful, completely joyful, with no lack at all. But not all of us will have the same rewards. We will have the new heavens and new earth. We'll have the new life, glorified body, worshiping God, all that stuff. We will reign with Christ. 
but we will have a different degree of rewards. One more passage here, 1 Corinthians 3. Now, this is speaking primarily to building up the church, but, when, but all of it, I mean, if you're working to share the gospel and magnify Christ and raise the money to spread, use for ministry and missions and spreading the gospel, all of your work is ministry for building up the church and seeking first the kingdom of God. So 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 10. According to the grace given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than what he has laid down. The foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. Here's the final judgment. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a what? A reward. If anyone's work is burned up because they didn't do good work, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So you work for the glory of God. You work seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You, you work to magnify Christ at work. You use the resources you're given to continue to spread the gospel. You work for the building up of Christ's kingdom and his churches. You do that, and you'll be judged in the end, and you know, you know that there is a judgment to come, and you will receive a reward. So work wholeheartedly and obediently in everything. The second reason here in Colossians 3, uh, not only do you know that you'll receive reward, you serve the Lord Christ. Jesus is your Lord. That's why, so that's another reason why we work in this way. Because we are serving whom, ultimately? Christ Jesus. The Messiah is God. He, the Christ means Messiah, and he's God. He's the Redeemer. He came to save his people from their sins. So let's remember the gospel. Let's remember that Jesus died for us, that Jesus reigns over us now, that he indwells us. He's our Lord now who deserves all glory, honor, and praise. And you get to glorify and honor and praise him every minute and every moment and every hour of your workday. He's your treasure. He's your wisdom. He's your indwelling companion. So that's another reason, because Christ is Lord, why you should work this way. And the third reason is because of judgment. Now, I already alluded to judgment, so we don't have to uh, go to 1 Corinthians 3 again here. But we are, look at verse 25. For the wrongdoer, and sometimes we do wrong at work, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Is God a fair judge, yes or no? Yes. He is, right? And the wrongdoer will be paid back for what he has done. I already read to you 1 Corinthians 3. That for some, and for all of us, I assume to some degree, uh, some of our work will be burned up and we will experience loss. God, will, God notices our good works. Praise God. He also notices our bad works. May God have mercy. Right? And he will have mercy for those of us in Christ. But we are still accountable. He will judge us for our work. So brothers and sisters... Because we have a reward and an inheritance coming, of the inheritance coming, because Christ Jesus is your Lord, and because we will be judged even for our wrong works and our bad working, let us obey our human masters, our human authorities, wholeheartedly in everything, as to the Lord, fearfully, worshipfully, comprehensively. Let's do this for God's glory. I had an illustration here, but I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to move on. But um, if you want to read for homework, Genesis 39, verses 2 through 9, you can read about Joseph, who was a great worker. Not only was he a great worker, he was a great worker because he feared the Lord. And when his boss's wife tried to sleep with him, he showed you he feared the Lord. Because his very reason for not sleeping with her is 
how could I do this and sin against God? I'm a, I work for God. Yeah, I, I'm the employee of, of your husband, but I work for God. I don't work ultimately for your husband or for you. So he was a good worker, wholehearted, comprehensive, trustworthy, but ultimately he did it for God. So work for Christ, work with Christ, and work from the power of Christ. Obey your human authorities while working. Now the second point, verse chapter 4, verse 1, is exercise authority righteously and fairly. So not only should you submit to human authority in everything, but here, exercise authority. Now when I say in everything, obviously I'm not meaning in sin. I, I should say that by way of caveat, but you're doing it for the Lord. So if your human authority is telling you to sin, you do not obey. All right, now, secondly, exercise authority righteously. So bosses and teachers, do righteousness, treat your workers fairly, justly, righteously, do, you know, grant them justice and righteousness and fairness to your employees and to your students. All right, so there's the command. Look at verse 1. Deal with your servant, your slaves justly and fairly. Deal with your employees, those under your authority, justly and fairly. I like the LEB's translation, so I'll quote it here. Grant what is just and what is fair. Grant justice and fairness to your employees. Don't cheat them. Don't manipulate them. Don't use them. Don't unfairly, don't treat them unfairly for selfish, self-centered gain. As those with authority, we have a temptation to dismiss our workers, to ignore them, to be selfish toward them, to be hypocritical with our standards. So we give them a standard that doesn't apply to us as if we're above principle. And we could use them, those under authority, for selfish advancement that cares nothing or little for them as humans, as image bearers. Now, why should you do this? Why should you grant them what is just and fair? Look at verse 1. Why? Since you know that you have what? You have a master in heaven. So why should you do this? Because you have a master in heaven who grants what is just and fair to you and to others. And why does, this ma why does the master only get one verse? It doesn't seem like he should have a bunch of restrictions given his ability to abuse authority, right? Why does he get one verse and slaves get like four verses? Yeah, why? Most people are slaves, maybe. I think the answer, now there's no, the ultimate answer is I don't know, but let me give you my guess. I think it's because most of, most of, this, most of what applies to the master is all, 22 through 25 applies to him too. If, if Christ is his master, then that means even as a master, he must, he should work as a master, he should work as an employer um, comprehensively, wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord deeply from his soul and worshiping the Lord Jesus. He should do that, right? When he works, when he leads. In other words, you can't... Um, the call, of, the call of chapter 22, verses 22 to 20, or 3, 22 to 25 eliminates the possibility of unfairness. You can't exercise authority unrighteously and fairly when you're working wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord and pleasing the Lord. You can't exercise authority unrighteously and unfairly while doing everything from your heart for the Lord and not for people. You can't abuse authority and uh, treat people unrighteously and unfairly when you know that you'll receive a reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You can't exercise authority unjustly and unrighteously when, and unfairly when you're serving the Lord Christ. You can't exercise authority unrighteously and unjustly while being sober-minded that you will be paid back for everything you've done, even the wrong you've done. You just can't do it. So Christian, work for Christ, work with Christ, Work from the power of Christ. If you're an employer, if you have human authority, 
Work for Christ, work with Christ, and work from the power of Christ in the way you treat those under your authority. Church family, I just want to encourage you again, plan on attending the core seminar, the Sunday seminar. Plan on attending the Christians in the Workplace Seminar. It's really helpful for you. If you can't make it for whatever reason, ask Peter, ask Tanner and Yek and Calvin. Ask them for the manuscript if you can't make it. And read it. Read it with the church. Read it the same week that we have the class so that you could talk about it with other church members. Okay? Not all of you can make it at nine. Read it. Work through it. Work through the material. Let's have conversations about this. But I want to close here with good news. Okay? Good, the good news... God is good, isn't he? God is so good. And this passage is so good for us. It's convicting, but it is so good for us. Why? This passage guards us from overwork and from underwork. And it guides us to fulfilled work. Praise God that God wants to guard you from overwork. And God wants to guard you from underwork. And God wants to guide you into fulfilled work, a fulfilling life of work. What a blessing that we can do every act and work for the Lord in communion with Christ, in worship of Him, in drawing near to the Father through our Lord Jesus. Every task and assignment and responsibility is a God-centered gift and opportunity. Every hour of work is a gift from God. It's an invitation for you to worship Jesus to draw near to him. Let me just get personal here. When I look at this, my takeaway, as I was reflecting on this, is I was so encouraged that God gives me an opportunity to live a full and fulfilled life right now and every moment. Being a pastor has an advantage of, I'm really reading the Bible, but I am a sinner just like you, and I can work without leaning on God. I can prepare a sermon for pleasing people. I can do things just because people are watching. Pastors can do that too. Praise God that I can prepare a sermon with my whole heart because he's calling me to. Praise God that I can do it to please him, that we can work because we fear and treasure Jesus, that we can do our, our work not half-heartedly, but we can do all of our work from the depth of our soul. But PJ, I want a promotion. I want to move from this job to move to another job. That's great. That's fine. That's okay. That's acceptable. That's not an excuse to not work from the soul. Christ wants your heart now. He wants you to enjoy him now. He wants you to be free from the sin of underworking and being lazy now. He wants to free us from finding our identity in work. I need my job. I got to overwork because if I can't, I can't, I can't provide. Can't Christ provide for you? But my boss is going to give me a hard time. Isn't Christ the greater boss? Do you fear your boss or do you fear the Lord? The Lord is freeing us. This is a passage of freedom. He's freeing us from the bondage of finding our identity in our job, of overworking. That's not a healthy life. That's not an enjoyable life, is it? God is inviting us to the fully fulfilled life in Christ. What a joy. What a blessing. What a wonderful passage and instruction. Now, this convicted me because I've struggled to worship God and do things wholeheartedly because I've been preoccupied. Here's my confession. I've been preoccupied with basketball. This NBA playoff season. I had COVID during the playoffs. One of the best times to have COVID <laughs> and not work. So you just watch game after game and listen to all, everyone's opinion. And there's so many opinions out there now. But in all honesty, I have not enjoyed the full and fulfilled life when I was able to indulge in it. It wasn't, it was, it was fun, but it wasn't fulfilling. 
It wasn't the, and nothing wrong with it. You could still do that, but doing it with worshiping the Lord from a full heart, whatever I do, doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and doing it for him. Brothers, we have an opportunity to do that with everything we do in leisure and in work. Praise God. If you're not a Christian, I know you want to enjoy work as a tool and not as a master. Work is a horrible master. It is not a loving and gracious master. It will drive you into the ground. Come to Jesus, your true master and Lord. The word of Christ transforms the work dynamics so that we live a full and fulfilled life in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we don't submit and obey and revere God at work as we ought to, right? And in authority, we have failed to love and serve and do right and do justly to those under our care. But there's someone who has never failed to exercise authority well. There's no one who ne- someone who never failed to submit to authority rightly and do everything from his soul, from his heart, unto God, and that is Jesus Christ. Christ was filled with God's words and submitted and obeyed and worshiped and loved and served and did not provoke or discourage. He did not treat those he was over unfairly and unjustly. He did it perfectly. And yet, though he lived a full and fulfilled life, fully loving God and fully loving others and doing right to everyone, instead of enjoying the reward of an inheritance in glory and honor, he was first dishonored. He was disgraced. He was mocked. He was shamed. He was tortured. And he was cut off from the land of the living. The one who deserves the inheritance in the new earth to come in the new kingdom, he was cut off from the land of the living by dying in our place for our sin, for our failure to work well. Praise God. Then he rose to receive his reward and inheritance, the inheritance of his people, of his kingdom, and of his sovereign and current reign and rule as our redeemer, king, and lord. And the sovereign Christ is speaking to us this morning and empowering us, and indwelling us. Brothers and sisters, friends, the full and fulfilled life has been given to you, and it's yours right now to seize for the rest of your life. Like I prayed, this text can transform your life drastically, right? Because this is talking about the majority of your week, the majority of your waking hours. If you do this text, the full and fulfilled life is yours to have this coming week. So brothers and sisters, don't overwork, don't underwork, work for Christ, work with Christ, work from the power of Christ, and rest in Christ. Father in heaven, take these words and hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you tomorrow at work. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. So guide us into fulfilling work. Guard us from going off the path into overwork and underwork. Help us to rest in Christ, to work for Christ, to work alongside Christ and to worship Christ and to work from the power that Christ provides. And when we fail, and we will, help us come freshly to the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead, our true master, our true boss, our true teacher, our true Lord, the God overall. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, friends.